From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. This month's primary election could determine the future of the Republican Party in Colorado. We've got deep divides within the GOP, and that's impacting how candidates are running in key political races. A lot will depend on what type of candidate wins, a traditional conservative who embraces fiscal responsibility, or one who puts the big lie front and center, the false claim the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. And that's what kills you because you you, you get down and you do the pros and cons and it's like, doggone it, isn't there someone that just goes straight down the line that agrees with, you know, 80, at least 85% of what I'm thinking. Purplish, our politics podcast, assesses the GOP divide and looks for a bridge. Plus, summer jobs in the high country... If you're looking to get rid of a car, running or not, consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is simple. All you need is the title. We'll take care of the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Donating your car is a powerful way to support the news and music you value. Make a difference by donating your car to CPR. Start on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Primary voting is underway via mail-in ballot. Election Day itself in Colorado is next Tuesday. And the Republican Party finds itself at a crossroads with the big lie about election fraud and candidates splintered over the influence of former President Donald Trump. So where does that leave voters? Let's hear from the team at Purplish, our politics podcast. Here are CPR public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny and Washington, D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim. So I want to talk about something going on in the Colorado Republican Party. Call it what you will, a fracture, a divide, a schism. Whatever it is, it's front and center. I like all those synonyms, and whatever it is, it's playing out in both the candidates and in the voters who will be choosing between them in the upcoming primary elections. We're really seeing that in some of the voters we're talking to as we're going around the state. At the GOP State Assembly earlier this year, there was a woman there, Amanda Normand, and she was decked out in gear for former President Trump. And when it comes to her main issues this election... There's so many. It's the what they're teaching in our schools to um, voter integrity, there's the border patrol or the border crisis. And she actually said she does think the GOP is kind of split right now. But Norman says she sees this as a good thing. And she likes the fact that conservative grassroots people are becoming more engaged in the party. There are more people here for the first time than ever. I'm one. I've never been here. This is new for me. But there's more people coming out now because we need to remake our party. Yeah. Party needs a makeover. But then on the other hand, there are also Republicans like Jim Hargis, who I met at the GOP assembly. Well, unlike many of the most vocal here, I am not far right. I am conservative. And here's what he said when I asked him about the state of the party right now. Uh, the popular movements tend to be less well informed. And uh, it's a question of education. So these voters come from opposite sides of that Republican divide, and it's framing many of this year's biggest GOP primaries in Colorado. It could also have an impact on how well the party fares in November. 
This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics, policy, and for this season, elections. I'm Caitlin Kim, here with my colleagues, Benta Berklin. Hello. And Andrew Kenny. Hi. And the first theme we're talking about is this rift within the Republican Party. Just who are the voters and what exactly do they want? Because I think the answers we're hearing can be quite different. Yeah, that's true. We've got deep divides within the GOP, and that's impacting how candidates are running in key political races. These are the races that will shape the future of the Republican Party here in Colorado. And it's an important question, not just for Republicans, but for everybody in this state, because a lot of these races actually could be up for grabs this year. It's expected to be a Republican wave year. And the Mm -hmm. outcomes Mm -hmm. of these primaries could really influence who ends up representing Colorado in Congress. And also, who's going to represent Colorado at the state capitol? As we've mentioned, part of our job is talking to voters and asking them what kind of issues are important to them and what kind of candidates they want. And we've been hearing some changing answers over the years. And Andy and Benta, I was kind of wondering, what are the big concerns that you've been hearing about this year? Let's start with what folks are on the same page about is the classic conservative message that things are off track and we need to get back to the way things were. Many voters are looking for somebody who's going to stand up to democratic governance and this creeping overregulation and overreach. I think, you know, for the longest time we kept hearing about big government and that had a lot to do with government regulations. But with the pandemic, it's kind of supercharged that issue, I think. And with a lot of conservatives I talk to, and I hear it very frequently, and I wouldn't even describe it as an issue, but it's just this just overall sense of Democrats micromanaging everything and going too far and kind of overreacting, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's how they were managing schools, even terminology that's used for different groups. You know, they think it's a step too far and it's this us versus them feeling, even from mainstream Republicans. So it's not just the far right. If this is something that we're all hearing from Republicans of all stripes, where are you hearing the differences? Well, at least on this theme, there's a lot of contrast in how voters are talking about that overreach. For some, it's that classical government's too big, my taxes are too high that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yep. But as you get farther to the right, it turns more into messages about a deep state, fears that Democrats are pursuing some fundamental social change and not just making government too big. And then big differences on what Republicans want politicians to be focused on. So for at least a third or more of the party, they're very intent on this idea that the election was stolen. We don't have evidence of that. In fact, all of the audits and hand counts and everything has checked out and shown the election was accurate. But they believe Biden isn't the legitimate president. And so this is more and more becoming a top issue for a lot of people. I'm also hearing a lot of the far right talking about transgender youth and sports, how schools teach about gender and race. Yeah, it's that divide between classic conservative fiscal messages and then a resurgence of different social issues. The culture wars. With the moderate wing, you know, we're hearing more of a focus on other things that are frustrating. You know, Yes, they want Republicans to deal with things like an inflation and the economy and more traditional GOP concerns. Right. There's that idea from the more moderate wing of the party that if they just talk about the price of gas and the price of housing, that that's a surefire win. And they don't want to get diverted off into talking about gender and race and whatever else, elections. 
And one other thing to add is the increasing crime rates. Both sides of the Republican divide and other voters are concerned about that. And certainly the more moderate Republicans want the party to focus on things like that and not pull the conversation into different areas like election fraud. But there's two points I want to make. And one is that politics and conservative politics have never been free of social and cultural issues like conservative messaging about gay people has been really prevalent for many decades. Race has come up in American politics forever. So that's not new. And the other point is that it's not like mainstream or, or whatever you want to call moderate Republicans don't share concerns about how gender and race is being taught. Don't share concerns about transgender athletes. It's just that it doesn't seem to be the front and center animating issue for them like it is for farther right Republican voters that we've heard from. Right. You know, I think a lot of what I've heard more from voters is about sort of style, how they want their representative to behave. You know, there are Republicans who think compromise is a dirty word and they don't want to see politicians give an inch on issues that they care about. You know, and there are others who are willing to see their representative work with people that they might not agree with. But if it gets things done for the district, they will work with them. That's kind of an eternal question, especially in the primaries for either party. Is <laughs> Do the voters want to see somebody who toes a really pure ideological line or somebody who tries to get stuff done in our limited system? Yeah. And that's, I think, another thing that we're hearing from people on the ground, from voters on the ground, that they want their candidate to still talk the way they talk on the campaign trail and then bring that kind of tone and and fight with them to Congress. One of the biggest differences I see just between you know, now and even covering politics 10, 15 years ago is how politicians use social media and Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. And they do have the ability to really shape the narrative about their persona. We see that especially with Congresswoman Boebert. I talked to a lot of people who like her persona. They feel like she's very fiery and feisty. And then that's exactly what her opponents don't like. But she has a way to be visible that you wouldn't have had a decade or so ago just through that different medium. Right. So we'll, we'll soon find out basically what is two years of being very visible and kind of aggressive in your messaging. Does that build your support in the district or does it turn people off? I think that's going to be one of the, the big questions for primary night. Yeah. So to sum up, I think what we're really seeing is a big difference in what Republican voters want their candidates to focus on and how they want them to behave. And as we're about to discuss, in a lot of races, they have some pretty clear choices on that front. So now it's time to turn to how this is all playing out in the big races in Colorado. Where, you know, where is this uh, sharp divide? So, Benta, you've been talking to Ron Hanks, who is trying to get the Republican nomination for Senate, and he won the top line at the Republican Assembly. And I think it might be safe to say he can be a little controversial. Yeah, he's certainly made quite a bit of news for a, a freshman lawmaker at the state capitol. He spent 30 plus years in the military. He is one of the most conservative members at the Capitol. He was the loudest voice pushing false claims that the presidential election was stolen in 2020. He was actually at the Capitol on January 6th. Didn't go inside, though, as he said. That's right. Yep. He was at the rally January 6th. He's also on some of the social issues, you know, a strong proponent of things like making abortion illegal. He is running against someone who is very different from that. Businessman Joe O'Day, he's a first-time candidate. He's a moderate. 
O'Day has explicitly said he believes the 2020 presidential election was fair. He supports legal abortion in the early stages of pregnancy. And he's really spent his campaign so far focused on these pocketbook issues like inflation, like gas prices. Yeah, those are issues that he thinks will appeal to more moderate voters. I think he would say that he is a conservative and he's just trying to have more nuanced answers to issues that will appeal more broadly across the state and not just the Republican base. Yeah, he's looking at that general election now. Yeah, he's looking in fall at the fall and going up against Michael Bennett, the Democrat incumbent. So we'll see. I'm just curious, though, Andy, is this the same dynamic that you're seeing in play in the gubernatorial primary? Yes and no. I would say it's not quite as explicit. But if you look over the positions and you talk to them, Heidi Gnall does describe herself as the Reagan Republican, the successful businesswoman focused on really crime. And again, those pocketbook issues, like Ben to put it earlier, Greg Lopez also comes from a business background. He worked at the Small Business Administration and talks a lot about some of those same issues. But when it comes to the other more controversial and polarizing issues within the party, he does land a step or two or three farther right from Heidi Ganahl. I wonder if those divides, you know, Andy, you were saying it's not quite as clear or as stark as in the U.S. Senate primary. So I'll be curious how voters in the primary parse that out between Ganahl and Lopez. Yeah, it's interesting because I wouldn't say that either of them, they're both trying to run independently of the other and not necessarily trying to put the other one in a box. But Lopez on abortion says no exceptions, unlike Heidi Ganahl, who says she would allow for abortion for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. Greg Lopez says 2020 wasn't legitimate, says he thinks Donald Trump won that election. Heidi Ganahl tries to avoid that topic a little bit more and say, Joe Biden's the president, let's look forward. Greg Lopez is more explicit on talking about sexualizing our children in the schools, and Heidi Ganahl doesn't really talk quite like that. Is that because you think Heidi is trying to also try to pivot to November if she makes it through? You could say that, or you could also say that it's just not her motivating issue. You know, she got into politics because she was upset about the way that government regulation was affecting her business, and that kind of drew her into the world of business Republicans. Okay. Well, let's get back to this idea of the divide in the Republican Party. And I think for me, where you see this divide in your bright flashing neon letters is the Secretary of State's race. And Benta, you have been covering that race. Am I wrong? Well, you are not wrong. I've been covering (laughs) the best known candidate in the race for quite a while. That is Mesa County clerk and recorder, Tina Peters. So she's been arrested for undermining election security in Mesa County. Allegedly, yes. Ten charges, federal investigation underway. And she's become one of the most high profile figures now nationally in this movement to falsely claim that 2020 was a stolen election. There's rallies and fundraising. And so she's gotten out there and a lot of people really see her as a hero. And they can think of nothing better than having Peters become the top election official in Colorado. And that's about as far right as you can get in terms of somebody who's running to run the election system is somebody who doesn't believe the election system works. And also has taken steps to try to, in her mind, uncover the fraud. And we're actually seeing similar election denier candidates in other states across the country running to be the top elections official. And that could really affect how elections are run in other states, including Colorado, she wins. But of course, Peters isn't the only candidate running, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Her main opposition is the candidate you would expect to be running. Her name is Pam Anderson, and she's the former head of the County Clerks Association. She used to be the Jefferson County Clerk and Recorder. She's kind of night and day from Peters in her views on election security in the 2020 election. So Anderson is running on her background as an experienced professional. She wants to cut government red tape, make the office more efficient and transparent. And she is a big believer in the accuracy of our current election system. There is one more candidate I'll mention. That's political newcomer Mike O'Donnell. His background's in business development, and he's been partially focused on like the business licensing function of the Secretary of State's office. But he is also an election security skeptic. He's been really critical of the voter rolls, which is this idea that tons of people who shouldn't be able to vote are on the voter rolls. There's not been any evidence that those kind of things end up affecting elections in a significant way. And he wants more state audits of votes. This race is getting a lot more attention and just the the issue in general coming out of 2020 and what we're hearing from Trump and his supporters. So I think that there's just so much more spotlight on this race in Colorado and Secretary of State races around the nation, because it's also what does that mean in terms of policies that are going to impact how people vote? What happens if she actually wins the nomination? That puts a lot of other candidates in a tough spot where what do you say about your own party's candidate for a major office who's under criminal investigation? Like a lot of other candidates will then have to answer for Tina Peters in the general. That's going to shape the narrative on a lot of other races, whether it's governor, U.S. Senate, state house, because it's going to be a messaging thing that they have to deal with. Yeah. And I would also imagine, though, it gives the Democrat, Jenna Griswold, a much easier race than she would have maybe gotten against the other candidates if, in fact, Peters gets through it. That's the assumption. Andrew Kenny, Benta Berkland, Caitlin Kim and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. When we come back, how the divide is shaping the Republican primaries for the state's representatives. This is Colorado Matters. Denver's first drinking fountains were not connected to plumbing. In the early 20th century, they operated from individual storage reservoirs filled regularly from horse-drawn tanks. Better to drink water from a fountain than a polluted creek. But there was a problem. Water running off people's lips and out their mouths as they drank ran right back into the storage tank to be slurped up by the next thirsty user. That all changed in the 1940s under Dr. Florence Rena Sabin. When she was in her 70s, Dr. Sabin traveled across the state on her own dime to get support for health care reforms that ultimately cut Denver's tuberculosis rate by half. Dr. Sabin's efforts led to cleaner streets, fewer rats, better milk, and fresh, clean water for drinking fountains and the state. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. A look today at the divide in Colorado's Republican Party. The primary election now underway reveals the differing views within the party and among voters of what's important. Traditional conservative issues like fiscal responsibility or conspiratorial ones like the big lie that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Let's get back to CPR's Washington, D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim and public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. What about the congressional primaries, though? Lynn, you've been all over that. 
where do we see this dynamic playing out, this divide between the right wing of the Republican Party and the other wings of it? Is that happening in the congressional races? It is. No questions at all. It's happening in Congressional District 3. That is the Lauren Boebert versus the Don Corum race. Uh-huh. Boebert, as we all know, no compromise, far right politician, tweets a lot, says some sometimes controversial things that her supporters love. You know, she wants to carry her gun in Congress. She filed articles of impeachment against President Biden. She's advocating for the oil and gas industry, insulting Democratic lawmakers. Owning the libs. Yeah, exactly. And again, the Republicans that love her, uh-huh. love her. But then there's a growing number of people in the district that have some qualms. You know, it makes them uneasy. And that, I think, is where you see Don Quorum enter this race. He's selling himself as the adult in the room who will comport himself with the dignity required of being a member of Congress. He says he will work with Republicans and Democrats just like he did in the State House to help the district. Quorum is trying to propose that he's the rural wing of the party, not the left or the right wing. He wants to talk about District 3 issues and really appeal to a more moderate voter base, including unaffiliated voters who could play a role in this contest. This race highlights more than any other, pretty much the stylistic difference between candidates, yeah. so not just philosophical differences. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a lot of voters that when it comes to Boebert and politicians like her nationally, they don't like how she phrases what she believes in or the toxicity or things that they feel are just outright mean. And that's something Quorum's running on. It's like, hey, I'm not like that. I think it's the you attract more flies with honey than with vinegar kind of well, approach to politics. You attract plenty of Twitter followers with vinegar. And, and part of Boebert's whole brand is saying, like, well, you guys hated Trump for his mean tweets. You voted him out for mean tweets. And now look what you got. So she totally leans into that aggressive messaging style. That said, you're not seeing that kind of Republican split play out in the new 8th Congressional District. That's the district that is north of Denver in the Denver suburbs. Gets a little bit of Weld County in there as well, but is the toss-up district in the state. I think that's right, Lynn. In the 8th Congressional District for the Republican primary, we have three women running, and two of them are very conservative. Lori Sane, she's a current county commissioner. She used to be a statehouse representative. And then we have Barbara Kirkmeyer, a state senator, was a long, long time county commissioner. And even though we're seeing flyers saying one's more conservative than the other or whatever, but I think it's a lot less clear. You're not seeing that Republican split dynamic in the Congressional District 7 race where Ed Perlmutter is retiring and you do have sort of a MAGA type candidate running, but she's not the top line. The top line is Eric Adlin, who's going up against a businessman, Tim Reichert, because this is a district that is almost plus seven Democrats. They're having a more moderate tone when it comes to how they talk about how they'd work in Congress. Well, if you ever believe that voters don't have an influence, they do. Politicians are calibrating themselves toward what they think the voters in their districts are at every single level. I will say to round out the congressional races, it is kind of interesting that all the Republican incumbents are facing primary challenges. Doug Lamborn in the 5th Congressional District and Ken Buck in the 4th Congressional District are both facing primary challenges. And I would say that this is sort of the typical primary challenge where you get challenged from your flank, in this case, the right flank, although Lamborn also has two challengers on the right flank and one challenger who's coming from the moderate side of the party. Challengers everywhere. Yeah. 
but um you know but ken buck who I, I don't think has had a primary challenger in years is also facing one and he and Lamborn are very conservative lawmakers mm-hmm. and they're both taking these challenges seriously i think in part mm-hmm. because of the bobert tipton example where tipton also a conservative lawmaker who kept his head down and did his work got beaten in the primary by a louder more trumpian primary candidate so yeah, I actually met somebody who's supporting Buck's opponent in that primary, Art Evans. He's from Elbert County. And essentially, he doesn't think Buck is conservative enough for one particular issue that Evans is concerned about, and that is election fraud. Buck doesn't believe that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. In fact, he's actually made efforts to have informational sessions to educate Republicans that Colorado's elections are secure. He was doing this when he was the state party chair. And Evans has an issue with that. It was pointed out that he recently has not been writing for the brand. And when he voted to certify a questionable election when it wasn't necessary to do so at that time, um, I, I think he showed his true colors. He's a nice guy. He's did a good job for quite a while. I like the man, he's a good man, but I think he's decided to be more of a politician than a representative of his constituents. So he's pointing out that unlike Lauren Boebert or Doug Lamborn, Ken Buck did vote to certify the election. He was one of five Republicans who came out to actually say the role of the Constitution of Congress is really limited. And it was to say yes, not to change voters or swap out slates. So he wasn't saying, at least in Congress, he wasn't saying that it was not fraudulent. He just was saying Congress's role was limited. So I think that's kind of interesting that it was a certification that set off art. So I know we've been focused on divides among Republicans, but we do have another major party, right? Democrats. So what's going on with some of those races? Well, there are not a lot of Democratic primary races. You know, they're essentially sitting out this the primary But there are two at least congressional primaries that I can flag. It's Congressional District 1. Diana DeGette is facing Neil Walia. And in CD3, Congressional District 3, these three Democratic challengers, Alex Walker, Adam Frisch, and Sol Sandoval. And I think in both of these primaries, it is sort of the traditional one, right? You have your moderate candidate and then you've got more progressive candidates. So we will see, again, how also the Democratic electorate is feeling about their split. People who want more centrist candidates versus people who want, you know, especially in a state like Colorado, maybe someone who's a bit more progressive. So just to recap quickly, because we did talk about a lot of races just then, Benta, sum up the state of the Republican Senate primary. Well, you know, big differences between Hanks and O'Day on social issues. Both men are conservative, but O'Day is really looking to the general election. We're a pretty blue Colorado right now, whereas Hanks is much, much farther to the right. Andy, what's your quick takeaway of the governor's race? Not so sharp of a divide, but you've definitely got one candidate, Greg Lopez, who's staked out farther right positions on abortion, education, and more. And then similarly, you've got a much more moderate candidate, Heidi Ganahl, who is looking at that general election and talking all about beating Polis and not about necessarily her opponent in the Republican Party. And Benta, my favorite, the neon sign Secretary of State race in the GOP. Yes, so this race is fascinating, and I just think all eyes are going to be on Tina Peters and whether she wins this primary, if she does win, how that impacts all the other races this fall. 
Right, and I will sum up the congressional primaries. I think you're going to see this divide most in CD3 with such a Trump-like incumbent and a moderate challenger. But in sort of the safe districts, you're going to see more traditional primaries with incumbent challenge from their flanks. And in flippable districts, I'd say the GOP divide isn't playing a major role at all. All this discussion leads us, I think, to our final point. How does this Republican divide play into the ultimate issue, electability? Benta, this is a big issue when it comes to these Republican primaries, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is a red wave year. This is a political opportunity that Republicans have not seen going back, I don't know how many election cycles. They want to make significant gains in Colorado, which is blue right now. So I think that who comes out of these primaries, which candidates win, will mean the difference between close races or Republicans potentially winning or be a relatively easy victory for a Democrat. Yeah, it's that classic political question of do you want to vote your ideals and send a big message and hopefully change the way the system works in the future? Or do you want to calibrate for somebody who's going to more likely win now and get smaller legislative gains in the near future? Sort of the idea of the perfect being the enemy of the good, right? You want someone who's 100% purely ideologically aligned with you versus someone who's 85 or even like 51%. (laughs) Yeah, I talked to a voter who said she was really struggling with which candidate to pick in a lot of the races. She was in her 70s. She likes a lot of the candidates. They all have good points. Her name's Mary Starkey, and I met her at the Western Conservative Summit. And that's what kills you, because you you, you get down and you do the pros and cons, and it's like, doggone it, isn't there someone that just goes straight down the line that agrees with, you know, 80, at least 85% of what I'm thinking? So I think that's something a lot of voters are going to have to grapple with on issues like, especially election security. How much are they willing to let that issue go potentially because it's maybe not as relevant? But in contrast, I think that a lot of voters on both flanks, left and right, don't see it as perfect being the enemy of the good. They don't see themselves as throwing their vote away, even if their person doesn't get elected. They see a vote for a Ron Hanks or whoever it is as helping to build a movement and keep their ideas alive and send a message to the party about which direction they need to go, even if it's not going to win them the general this year. I kind of brought up that question to Representative Hanks. We hear from a lot of the Republican political class, the former state GOP party chair, Dick Wadhams, that someone like Hanks would not be electable in a state like Colorado, where Biden won and it's essentially a blue state right now. And I asked Hanks about that and he just fundamentally said, no, that's not true. Like there's a lot of people who agree with me and his supporters say the same thing. Like we are not a blue state and Hanks is in the best position to kind of galvanize those voters. Yeah. One of the key attributes of a politician is believing in yourself to some level, believing your own message. And I guess you have to honestly believe that the voters are out there. Maybe you'll never find out unless you do it, I suppose. Republicans and unaffiliated voters aren't the only ones really eyeing the Republican primaries closely. There are Democratic-aligned forces that are also keeping an eye on the race because they have skin in the game, right? Whoever comes out of this will face one of their candidates in November. And they're trying to, not to stack the deck, but stack the deck. (laughs) Well, exactly. And we're actually seeing Democratic-aligned groups spend quite a bit of money in the U.S. Senate race to boost Ron Hanks, who doesn't have money to spend in his campaign. And there's been millions of dollars, close to a million and even more now, into television ad buys across the state, digital ads, 
mailers going out to Republican voters, and these are all to boost Hanks and attack O'Day. What's interesting is that they're still defensible because they're nominally they're saying, well, Ron Hanks is too conservative for Colorado. So on the surface, that seems like an anti-Ron Hanks message. But it's the primary where you want to be conservative. So the idea behind these is that they will actually attract voters to Ron Hanks. Voters who are like, oh, well, I don't want to listen to what the Democrats are saying. I'm going to go support conservative Ron Hanks. We definitely hear about meddling in the other side's primaries in other states, but we haven't seen it in Colorado to this degree. Republicans thought it was unfair, and there was a lot of pushback against Democrats for spending this money to try to boost Ron Hanks. Having those TV ads and having those mailers will tighten this race, and I think it's really a toss-up as to who could win this primary now. And there's also some of the similar kind of spending to boost Greg Lopez in the governor's race. And yeah, the Heidi Ganahl campaign is furious about it. Some older school, more moderate Republicans are really mad about it because they see it as this interference in these primaries that will determine the shape of the party for a little while to come. I would say one other thing that was interesting when it came to for, for the Senate primary, Hanks and O'Day, a former state lawmaker who's a Democrat also called out this practice of meddling because he doesn't think Democrats should be trying to elevate Hanks, who was there on January 6th, to be the nominee for a major party ticket. He thinks that's bad for democracy. Yeah. And when I spoke with O'Day about this, he said he thinks it's actually going to backfire on Democrats, that, you know, there's a lot of people energized about his campaign. And he sounded very confident that it wasn't going to affect his chances. We've been talking a lot about how this Republican divide is going to be playing out in the state and in the primaries and potentially the election going forward. And I'm just kind of curious, Andy, how do you see this playing out this year? Well, we could either see these farther right ideas gaining traction and bringing the GOP in the state as a whole farther to the right. Or we could see the moderates triumph and having a better shot in the general and maybe Colorado GOP that looks more like it used to. I honestly don't know, but I do know that it'll shape how the party is. You mentioned this talk about the party writ large, and you know it's not just about which candidates come out of the primary, but which GOP party comes out of these primaries. Benta, you know, what do you think these matchups mean for the Republican Party in Colorado long term? A lot of people I talk to across the political spectrum, political observers, people who've worked on campaigns, Democrats, Republicans. They said that this could be a barometer for what kind of gains the party can make in the state. When you look on paper, we're a blue state. But are we still purple-ish? How much red do we have? It's just going to be fascinating because we have so many races that are in play. There's so many different factors beyond the candidates and some of the rifts we've talked about. What's happening nationally and internationally and the economy and I mean, so many unknowns that will be hard to predict at this stage. I think it's going to be a very consequential election for the state. Benta Berkland, Andrew Kenny, Caitlin Kim, and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Follow this and all of the episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. Our website is also where you can listen to my interviews with GOP gubernatorial primary candidates Greg Lopez and Heidi Ganahl. And coming up, 
Later this week on Colorado Matters, interviews with Ron Hanks and Joe O'Day, the Republicans who hope to unseat Democratic U.S. Senator Michael Bennett. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Finance Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. Colorado's mountain towns are gearing up for summer. CPR's Sarah Mulholland says these days that means a mad dash to hire staff. Yoga punch cards, bike park passes, tuition reimbursement. It's all on the table when it comes to perks for hiring hospitality workers this summer. And of course, there's more money, too. Sarah Sanders manages the collective event space in Snowmass. Sanders bumped up hourly wages from $18 to $22 this winter because she had zero job applicants. The raise helped, but now she's short-staffed heading into the summer season, which she says really gets going at the end of June. Every business is offering really nice incentive bonuses right now, signing bonuses, higher wages than previously. So I think it's much more competitive than it has been in the past. Sanders struck out at a recent job fair in the area. Martina Lynch was at the same job fair. Job fairs aren't what they used to be anymore. She's the director of talent and culture at Aspen's Hotel Jerome. To stand out, she tries to grab a table right up front. There's, you know, 40 companies and 30 people who are looking for jobs. The ongoing labor crunch is tough on businesses, but it's pretty good for workers. Lynch says the Hotel Jerome recently launched a program to pay some education expenses, as long as the degree is related to an employee's job. So if someone in food and beverage wants to be a certified sommelier, we will pay for a portion of the cost if they've been here for a year. Probably the biggest perk an employer can offer in Colorado's mountain towns is an affordable place to live. And a lot of businesses offer subsidized rent, but there's just not enough to go around. Rose Rosello is the HR manager for the Viewline Resort and Wildwood Hotel in Snowmass. They house about 100 employees at the Wildwood, and they rent other units around town as well. But Rosello is still struggling to fill key roles and thinks housing costs are a big part of that. I mean, we've had our accounts payable position open for six months. And so definitely there's a big struggle there for servers and bartenders. Also super tough. Rosello just filled the accounting position this week. And despite the challenges, she's optimistic she'll be able to pull it off this summer. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. And when we come back, the pandemic is another iteration in Colorado's boom and bust history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. My name is Kenneth Wright. I'm with Wright Water Engineers, and we sponsor CPR. We sponsor because it's a community resource that we value very much and because it provides wonderful music 24-7. Wright Water Engineers does very little advertising outside of sponsoring CPR. The proof of the benefits is in our bottom line, and every dollar we spend is a dollar well spent. Learn about sponsoring CPR at CPR.org. Two Coloradans were working on a book about the state's boom and bust cycles when the pandemic hit. It upended the projects while adding an unexpected layer. I spoke with historian Tom Noel and attorney Bill Hansen back in December. 
Tom, Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan, for having us. Thank you, Ryan. Good to meet you. So COVID meant a major rewrite. Uh, Instead of ending boom and bust Colorado with a chapter about modern boom times, you had to pivot to an ending centered around the pandemic bust. Were you two in a sort of panic when this book was due to publish, Bill? Well, this was a little irritating because we (laughs) had the manuscript accepted by the publisher on March 1st of 2020. We'd been working on it for a couple of years. And then within two weeks, the entire project became irrelevant. And uh, it took several months for us to discuss it with the publisher and say, we've really got to go back now and deal with a pandemic, swing into the 1918 pandemic, and then revisit all of the booming industries that we had previously talked about and try to figure out the impact on them. It was a major rewrite and covering the pandemic in real time was really quite challenging. Ah, I imagine. And uh, you made reference there to the flu pandemic of the early 1900s. So you draw a correlation there. Tom, you've written, oh my goodness, dozens of books. Uh, Was this a a first time experience for you? Yeah, yeah. I don't think we've ever written from the bottom of a bus before. The bottom of a bus. Well, in the book, you call the COVID-19 pandemic Colorado's sharpest and swiftest economic crash in nearly a century. Is it reminiscent of previous busts, though? Yes, and certainly the reaction uh, is similar, where uh, businesses want to stay open, where health officials and economists say, beware, uh, we better deal with this, we better mask everyone up. So we had the same struggle then that we had now in 1918 as we have now about the mask or not the mask. What you still had was public health officials taking on politicians during election year, as well as businesses who are crashing and uh, the public asserting personal liberty interests in lieu of the uh, common good. And that's a very much common theme. And I'm not sure we really learned much from history from uh, that experience, but it was identical then. And Uh, Actually, the 1918 flu pandemic was probably worse in Colorado than the 2020 pandemic in terms of uh, we were a little more still in the Wild West era of uh, personal liberties and a little more resistant to uh, listening to public health officials. Our medical know-how, no doubt, was less as well. Tom, I think the exact count actually is this is the 56th book you've published about Colorado history. And of course, it takes the booms and busts beyond the pandemics. So I wonder if you unearthed any new nuggets about olden times, maybe a great anecdote about previous booms and busts. I think we uncovered a few of the people that would dealt with people like Aunt Clara Brown, the the black ex-slave here who came out, did very well, made money in Central City, helped build a church there. Her story had not been told that well, we didn't think before. Yeah, Aunt Clara Brown. Later living the hardest possible way, washing those long johns of miners. If you can imagine all the filth and dirt and bodily fluids and whatnot she was dealing with. Tell us more about her. She was born a slave in Tennessee. I went to an owner named Brown who was very impressed with her religiosity and her teaching herself to read through the Bible. He freed her. She went to St. Louis and there joined up with a bunch of guys headed west. 
1859 for the Colorado Gold Rush. And what did she do once she got to Colorado? She opened up a laundry business, much needed, up in Central City. Oh, even before that, Ryan, I forgot, she started the first Sunday school here in Denver with one John M. Shivington, a Methodist minister. So Hmm. you have an interesting uh, clash of people there that we discovered. That's Colonel Shivington from the Sand Creek Massacre. Exactly. My goodness. Was the first black woman admitted into the Pioneer Society. And also, uh, somewhat belatedly, she's been put in stained glass in the state capitol, and we've got a new monument up for her in Riverside Cemetery. Uh, In Denver. There is quite a bit of Colorado health history in this book, Beyond Pandemics, Bill. Uh, When tuberculosis was raging, how did Colorado become, quote, the most remarkable sanitarium in the world in the late 1800s? Well, partly by promotion by the railroads and others. Uh, but the fact is, a lot of people thought that the uh, dry, high, sunny climate in Colorado was naturally good for people's health. And there was a group of physicians that uh, evolved during the 1880s to promote that as a sure cure uh, for tuberculosis, then called consumption. And it brought a tidal wave of people to Colorado, both as tourists and permanent residents. And many believe that tuberculosis brought more people to Colorado as tourists or permanent residents than either mining or agriculture ranching during that period. And so it was a major population boost to Colorado and again promoted to the, by the railroads and Colorado boosters. It was actually probably a health hoax. It really didn't cure anybody, but a lot of people thought it would. And um, that was the foundation of such uh, institutions as National Jewish Hospital, which opened in 1899 and has become one of the premier lung institutes in the world. And one of the things we have found, uh, Ryan, is that tuberculosis is not something the Chamber of Commerce wanted to talk about or the boosters. So it's pretty well suppressed. You don't even have hard figures for documenting what Bill suggested, which many of us believe, that many more people came here for health than for wealth. But it is fascinating to me that there might have been a tourist message around tuberculosis, like, come here if you're sick. Do I have that right, Bill? Yeah, that's what people were saying. But it was it was being promoted, again, by the railroads. They wanted people to come out here. And then there were the tourists, like Lady Bird, who touted the beauty of Colorado, but also its healthful effects. And you start seeing this in the 1860s. And the Chamber of Commerce actually did buy into it until uh, Dr. Koch decided it was a contagious disease. And uh, Suddenly, by 1900, people weren't so eager to uh, lure the consumptives into Colorado. (laughs) Oh, that's fascinating. You mentioned Lady Bird. I gather that's Isabella Bird, who wrote A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. Exactly. Yeah, which was her account of living near Rocky Mountain National Park and her relationship with a man that she met there. Um, Here's what's fascinating. The TB sanitarium movement made the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic even worse in Colorado. Was that because there were so many sick people here who were more susceptible to the virus, Tom? Yeah, I think so, that the population generally, compared with other states, 
have many more people with lung problems, which is what brought them here in the first place. Gosh. You find an element of racism in the way the 1918 pandemic was handled. Well, I think what happened in 1918 is everybody was looking for a scapegoat. The immigrants were naturally a uh, somewhat reviled group of people, Eastern Europeans, Italians, Irish, and therefore they were often accused of contributing to the health crisis in Denver in 1918. They were ostracized because when a member of the family became sick, they naturally uh, congregated in the family uh, home and attended to the ill while, as opposed to going to doctors. Hmm. And the same thing with the Ute Indians. Uh, they were ostracized as well because they supposedly didn't listen to the public health authorities at the time. But it was primarily an anti-immigrant thing. Somebody needed to be blamed, and who else better than the immigrants at that time? There was very heavy uh, Jewish immigration at that point, many poor Jews from Eastern Europe who show up here. And that was one reason for, of course, National Jewish Hospital and the JCRS, the Jewish Contemplative Relief Society, being created. Although, to their credit, the Jews welcomed non-Jews to those institutions. Ah. Okay, let's jump forward a century, ending the book with assessments of what you call the vice segments of Colorado's economy, by which you mean gambling, beer, and marijuana. How have those industries fared in the pandemic? Well, amazingly well. Um, Not surprisingly. I, I always thought it was interesting that Critical industries early on during the pandemic included the uh, pot dispensaries, the gun retailers, and the uh, booze stores, as opposed to the uh, religious institutions, which were not deemed critical. And so as it turned out, um, pot and gambling just soared during this period of time with the online gambling somehow saved the casinos. And uh, beer fared pretty well, too. So, yeah, the vice industry seemed to have come out of the pandemic pretty well, especially pot. I guess everybody wanted to be high. I mean, I, I recall the scenes in Denver when the mayor, for a moment, tried to close down liquor stores and dispensaries early on uh, and how, how well that did not go. Yeah, that only lasted about a day, didn't it? <laughs> I, I, I think it might have been less than that. Uh, in fact. So, Tom, it it makes sense to me that vices, which are a a form of escape, right, do well when times are tough, a kind of counter-cyclical relationship. Is that true in history as well? Yeah, I think so. And when the publisher first approached me about this, they wanted to update the standard boom and bust approach with mining rushes and whatnot, and to add beer, uh, which, of course, we were number one for a while in brew pubs and uh, microbreweries, and also to add the uh, marijuana angle, which where we were the first state to legalize recreational marijuana. By popular vote. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. Historian Tom Noel and attorney Bill Hansen, co-authors of Boom and Bust Colorado. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. 
And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow the show at Colorado Matters on Twitter. I'm at CPR Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.